Magic Man himself from the Magic Room Studios. Ladies and gentlemen, if you could see this handsome man right now, you'd be blown away. Mark, welcome to Talking During Movies. Sir, how are you today? I am doing great. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing really good. I, uh, you know, we're going to talk over a movie that you picked. We're gonna step, talk about that in one second, but first I wanna give a couple of local shout outs, one here in Austin, Texas, and then one in uh, Northern California. Uh, Austin, Texas, local man, uh, you know, one of my favorite spots has always been 24 Diner. It's a beautiful spot to have breakfast, lunch, dinner, late, late night, always just an amazing assortment of foods catering to the person who loves meat, to the person who is, is vegetarian or vegan. They have it all. And Chef Drew and the concepts of the other restaurants he's created here in Austin is absolutely amazing. So if you're in Austin, Texas, please go check them out. If you're just you know thinking about visiting Austin, Texas, find them on Instagram, give them a like, send them a little love. And then also I want to give a shout out to my people at Colorblind Design. They make that tactical six-pack carrier that uh, I carry my beers in. It's got a light insulation on the inside. It's got this magnetized paint on the outside. So when I pop the bottle open, the little thing just sticks right, the little bottle cap sticks right to the side. They custom designed mine for me and then I sent it to Tim Kennedy. Then Tim Kennedy signed it and sent it back to me. So I've got like this double win on this really cool thing. And every time I bring it over to have you know beers in the uh, neighborhood with the fellas, let me tell you, they are, they're all about it. There's like, okay, get me one, Jay. And I'm like, no, man, I'm not spending 50 bucks on you. No, 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 you don't, you drink my beer. You don't get to drink my beer and get the cool, cool six pack carrier. So go check them out, colorblinddesign.net or follow them on Instagram, colorblind.design. They also follow Talking During Movies. So there's all that. Mark, let me turn it over to you, sir. All right. Um, yeah, thinking about uh, local businesses there, uh, we made a, you know, since this whole lockdown, of course, we've all been sequestered away in our little caves and uh, don't get out much. And uh, my world has definitely been that way. Um, but we, we do jump out and have some food here and there. And so we actually went out right down the street. I was surprised to find an amazing eatery uh, called the Boar's, sorry, the Boar's Head. And the boar's head is like a, you know, high-end sandwiches and smoothies with all the, all the good stuff. And uh, yeah, it was a $55 bill Woo! For, uh, yeah, for two sandwiches and two smoothies, two large smoothies, but it was really good. <laughs> so, and I was surprised to see that place right by our house. And there's, there's a little place you can sit outside or a little table inside. It was just a nice little place. Yeah, the boar's head. Nice. Nice. <laughs> 
Hey, Mark, tell us, you know, so we got introduced, Elizabeth Maxwell has been on the podcast a couple of times, uh, very generous with her time. And the second one we did was, uh, you know, uh, the Virgin Cheerleaders, not that kind of movie as, as she likes to say. Uh, you did, I did the same thing. <laughs> you did the music for that film, correct? Yes, I did. Um, I did the music, I did the whole score, plus some song, uh, the kind of theme song that you hear at the end. And so when Elizabeth was on, she was actually on before that movie talking about her other work, because I know she's done tons of voiceover and, and things like that. And uh, she's a pretty, pretty, pretty active actress. She works a lot. But yeah, I, um, I got involved with Virgin Cheerleaders and Chains. <laughs> Not that kind of movie. That's actually, I think, almost <laughs> become a tagline. And uh, I did the whole score for the film, and as well as some editing stuff at the end, some video production at the end. Um, you know, what happens with movie productions in general is you get a bunch of people together, you shoot the production, and then everyone goes away. And you also employ an editor, maybe a visual effects artist. And at some point, you try to get the best people you can get. And those people are really busy. And you still look at the project and go, we need to do this and we need to do that. Oh, and we need DVDs for the screening and we need this. And sometimes the filmmakers that are involved that are left left to help make the project push through to the very end to see distribution uh they don't have those skills and they they're kind of used up their their resources and they're kind of you know it's that final push and so because i know how to do video production as well as the music composing and scoring i helped out getting our, our dvds for screening i actually you know pieced together the four sections of the film um there was some footage that had the wrong frame rate that we had to correct and i had to help with that so i work with the uh one of the producers, Sandra Steele, uh, she and I basically kind of finished up for Gary. And Gary, of course, is the, Gary Ganaway is the, the uh, writer and producer of the film. Our director was actually in Brazil. So he came in, you know, came to America, got the shoot done. He did a little bit of pickup shooting in Brazil is my understanding. I never went to set. So I, uh, when you're a composer, it's a strange thing. You know, you, you get to know everyone that's the actor, uh, the actors and actresses on the film because you work with them daily on screen as you're scoring the film. So you feel like you know them. You, I went to the screening and it was like, my old friends. And they're like, who's this guy? <laughs> you know, uh, <clears throat> but uh, it that doesn't take long before we, we you know, share war stories and we all go, oh, okay, great. Yeah, I see, oh, I've seen your, your name over here on this project or that project. It's a very small world. How does, how do you get in? But, um, yeah. How do you get into a position like that? I mean, you know, it's, I think there's one person that's like, oh, I'm a, music major in college or I'm a film major in college or I'm radio TV in college. But then there's this disconnect of that title, for lack of a better term, and then actually putting your art and your talent into a functional practice and to put it in such a functional practice to where, you know, it's, it's, and, and I've, I've talked to many people about this where music does something different. Art does one thing, television, movies, they can do one thing, but music, can can make you time travel and i'm not trying to throw back on i talked to a, a lady last week who does out of body travel it's kind of it's out of body travel that art maryland she's a very nice woman but it, it it moves you into places and it takes you out of scenarios and situations there are songs i can turn on and i don't care what time of the day it is i'm ready to crack open a beer and have a good one there are songs that I can put on and it takes me back to college. I mean, literally takes me back to college. And if I go and look in the mirror, I'm like, shit, I got old really fast. What is it? I mean, I, so I guess two questions, right? How do you get into it? And then two, 
why does music do that to us? If you can help explain that, because you are part of what brings us to places that we don't get to be a part of unless you do that to the movie. Yeah, no, it, the whole goal of a composer is to, to sort of, uh, and, and I hate the word, but they, it's, it's to slightly, slightly manipulate our emotions. And the, the trick is to do it without you knowing you're being manipulated because you don't want to, you, that's, a, that's a bad thing, you know, you, no one likes that feeling. Um, but it makes you, um, I, I've got so many different directions I could talk about because it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting subject. I, um, you know, like movies like Jaws and such, you know, the, think about these films without the score, like how, how it, it's, it's the, the score has to stand on its own apart from the film for the very reason that you, you stated, you know, it, it, it affects you emotionally, you know, and it, it helps you m remember. You can put on the music and suddenly you're remembering the film. You know, you're remembering the feelings you had when you watched the film. Uh, just yesterday, I was reading a post of a friend uh, on Facebook and they were talking about, you know, when I was a kid, I had my Atari and these songs. And, and I remember how I had recorded this song on a cassette tape. And then my friend erased over the cassette. Or, no, he, he had his brother's cassette. That's what it was. And he, he erased a couple of seconds of the song. And, <laughs> and now every time he hears that song, he remembers that glitch in the song, you know, because he, it was such a moment that he was felt so bad about. But yeah, songs are memories. I mean, they take you back to those, those certain times in your life when you're feeling a certain way. And then, that, and, and here's the real thing is that a great songwriter will write a song so that it, it can be interpreted by the majority of people. If you write a very specific song with a very specific message, you limit your audience and maybe more people won't relate to it. They won't get the feeling. They won't get that emotional connection to the song. And so the goal of a great song is to be slightly amb ambiguous so that more people can interpret it and 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 you know it's like a bag a bad psychic you know a bad psychic <laughs> i think you're feeling a little down you may be feeling a bit confined you may be feeling like you're not reaching your full potential because you're locked in a room during quarantine you may be you know <clears throat> you don't want to do too much specific information because you're going to get busted right but you want to keep uh you know for those that are not real psychics um you know, but so the song needs to be very, very general in its lyrical content. And then musically, that's, that's a whole nother, whole nother discussion. Well, yeah. And before we get into that, I, you know, one of the things real quick is let's, because let's jump into this. The movie you picked is one, it's very timely Two, the music really does set a tone for this. And I mean, this is in my, in my, humble opinion right it, it is a good departure from i think others 70s songs and classics and movies and television shows that didn't have the same uh musical thematic themes that that that, that this film had and so please tell us about the yeah. film uh, why he, you chose it. he um the and it's it's the composer and the film is a large part of my um inspiration it's Ron Grainer is the composer. I mean, I, I love the film and I could talk about the film on the other side of, of you know, just loving movies and, and, and as a filmmaker and all that, I like to talk about the film itself. But the music in this particular film really spoke to me. The guy that wrote the score is named Ron Grainer and he was the one that wrote, he was mainly an English television show um, composer. He did Doctor Who is his most famous work. Um, I think he did The Prisoner. He may have done, um, uh, you know, um, 
I think it was a glitch because I'm not changing it on my own. There we go. We're back. <laughs> Say that again. Um, and by the way, where's the movie? Are we seeing the movie? You're seeing the movie. I'm, I'm just seeing the movie. Yeah, it's just it's cruising along. We're all we're all you good. Have to tell me what scene is if you want to think it's relevant. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. <coughs> Sorry, I've got a little bit of stuff in here, so I'm trying. That's it's messing with me a little bit. <coughs> trying to clear it out, but it's not doing so well. It's all good. It's all good. Trying to give you one edit point here. All right, we'll just carry on. All right. Um, so Ron Grainer is the composer for The Omega Man, and uh, he was actually known for English television work. He did a lot of themes for famous shows you may have heard of, like Doctor Who, for instance. Uh, that was probably the most famous that uh, people will recognize. Many other, uh, other shows like The Prisoner and, and such. And he didn't do very many films. And I came to find out later, actually, um, a whole other story about trying to find the soundtrack to the Omega Man, because when I first saw the movie, I was, I was just mesmerized, you know, the, the whole film, everything about it. Charlton Heston, I'm a huge fan. I've watched all of his other films, Planet of the Apes, Solent Green. I'm a sci-fi you know, and horror fan as well, fantasy fan. And so I watched everything in that, that genre, Planet of the Apes, of course. And uh, so here was this movie that was this kind of cool germ warfare um, pseudo horror action movie uh, and the music immediately captivated me I was like this is beautiful music and it was very thematic and that was the thing is that you know as I mentioned earlier the the score needs to stand on its own so away from the film without looking at the visuals you can just listen to that music and it's 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 enjoyable it's art within itself it's self-contained but when you put it with the images it creates a whole nother new art you know this this new thing that's even it takes the music even more um, to, to another place. And I didn't know who the composer was, of course, when I was a, a young lad. And I mean, I was young. I was 14, 15, something like that, when I first saw the film on television, I believe. And of course, back then, you couldn't see it again, right? It, it would come on the late <laughs> night show or maybe over here, over there. And uh, I remember when I was 16, I saw it was coming on on the network again on the a local cable channel. And so I got a little cassette recorder put a blank had some blank cassettes because that's what I was playing with at the time and I put it on the floor in front of the tv and hit record and recorded the whole movie so that I could listen to the score and listen to the lines of the movie um and I remember my grandfather you know I was at my grandfather's house staying with them at that point and uh he came into the room he had a uh, he had a habit of whistling ever, ever notice old people whistle sometimes oh yeah okay there's a reason for that we can talk about that too so <laughs> Excuse me. So um, he would come into the room whistling really loud. I'm like, there's there was a couple of whistling spots on there. So every once in a while, when I listen to the score, I, I hear the whistling in my, my memory, you know, from having listened to that tape so long. And then one day I actually accidentally hit record for about 10 seconds, not realizing I'd hit record. And I was like, oh no, I was devastated. And so I played it back. And it was that, it was that line where he says, a couple of days couple of weeks maybe a month who knows when he's talking about you know how long it'll take for richie to get well oh yeah so I dubbed that as a kid i dubbed my own line on the just fill in the space you know so the movie would still be intact you know which was pretty hilarious um it's, it's really really interesting here you know hearing you talk about this and your grandfather and the whistling and, and the music <clears throat> it reminds me of a story uh you know we i used to bartend in this bar bitter end in portland oregon 
and this guy would come in. And you know, Portland uh, has a has a large contingent of of, of uh, homeless people. And uh, he had come in, and he called himself Big Time. And he was obviously a little delusional, uh, but he had come in and go, "Hey, Jathan, what's happening?" I go, "What's happening, Big Time?" He go, "Man, not much. Listen, I went down to the Marriott Hotel, and they asked, and I said, you know, because I am the owner of the Marriott, and I said, could I get my paycheck?" And they said, I'm sorry, we don't have it for you. Jason, could I borrow a Budweiser? And I would say, sure, big time, no problem. I'd give him a Budweiser. And then I'd, I'd leave every time he'd come in, I'd put sitting on the dock of the bay on. And he'd start telling stories. Only when that song was on, though. So he'd be like, hey, Jason, you know I know Otis Redding? And you know I used to whistle a lot? But I don't whistle anymore because Otis heard me whistle and he said, will you whistle for my phone, but only whistle for my phone and no other phone and never whistle again? And I said, sure, Otis, we are friends. I will only whistle for you. Now that Otis has passed, I can no longer whistle, but thank you for playing the song. Could I borrow another Budweiser, please? (laughs) He would just just tell these entertaining stories about it was a bus driver for 30 hours a day. He had a story. He's developed, I guess it's a mechanism, but he's developed a a story for every single thing that is logical. That's logical to him, right? Like any song that came up, if it was Van Halen talking about touring, right? He's like, oh, I drove a bus for 30 hours a day. Right. Yeah. And you just, yeah sometimes those stories are real, but the, but with this guy, I assume not. But, uh, yeah. but it's great because I had a friend at one point who was probably had some some unscrupulous uh, morals in some ways, but he was highly intelligent, and uh, he he would always say the way to make a lie work. Now, and and of course, the, the gentleman you're talking about is not lying. It's just his 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 yeah. situation, you know, his condition. But um, you know, he, he probably, he, he know or he's, he's doing it for fun. You know, he, he just, but he's consistent. That's the thing. And what my friend said was, if you want someone to believe something, it's, it's all about consistency. You tell the story exactly the same way every single time you never deviate. And eventually a bunch of people believe it and it becomes so true. And uh, there's some truth to that. And uh, I remember Forrest Ackerman, who was the editor of Famous Monsters in Filmland. I had the pleasure to meet him. I actually went to a Famous Monsters of Filmland convention back in 99 97 something like that so uh, it was the next i think almost the last convention they ever had in california and i've made the tour to what's called the acker mansion which is his home where he's collected all the memorabilia for years of course at this point he's passed away and the home has long been sold and everything um but he would tell these stories and he did the same thing. They're true stories in his case, but he would tell them the same way to every single visitor every day, repeatedly, 10, 20, 30 times a day, depending on how many tours he did of his home. Because he just let fans come into his house and he would just do his thing. And when I was there, we had to ha- catch a plane and um, he was in the middle of telling a story. And he finished the story and he looked at his watch and he went, well, it's, uh, it's about lunchtime. What do you say we amble down the hill to the local deli and grab a bite? And he just got up and walked out the house, you know, and we had to go get on the plane and go. And I was just, I was devastated because I couldn't go have lunch with Forrest Ackerman, you know. Dang, that's also, didn't get too, photos too. until about 40 years later. Um, the camera I bought at the um, gift shop had bad film. So there was no pictures. All, we went, we got nothing. And there was a fan there who took pictures of us and, and the whole house. And he said, well, I'll, I'll send you these. Well, he never did. He never did. It was, you know, I, I wrote him, never, I never got him. I had about four four or five pictures I did get from the con with Ray Bradbury, um, uh, Forrest Ackerman. But in the end, about three weeks ago, 
this gentleman who took those photos found me on Facebook and sent me photos. So it actually happened years later. It was amazing. Yeah. I got goosebumps. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's the power of this, the social network, if you will. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in your love of, of, of monster movies and, uh, and, and horror and thrillers, you know, we're watching the, the Omega Man here. And what, are, what are some of the other, like, I think this holds so true. One, it, it highlights Charlton Heston's acting to a T because for a majority of the film, He's kind of by himself, right? I mean, he, yeah, no, he has to carry the whole thing. He has yeah. charisma. And it's, that's the thing. Charisma is a huge thing. Yeah, and it seems like I'm wondering what other, you know, because people get caught up in, and I think a lot of the newer horror films of just the gore and the, and the gush. And, it's, and, and they're, they're, they're lo- they're, I think we're losing some of the great acting in that, you know. I think there, are, there, are, some, there are some big hits. I mean, Get Out is, was beautifully written and done. But what are some other classics that you would recommend to people besides Omega Man to, to really- what you, said, what you said is exactly my, my opinion um, in a big way. I think they've, they've completely, they're completely missing the boat. Um, and that's because my, my favorite uh, studio is Hammer Films. Hammer Films is an English film company. And their two main stars that everyone knows is Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And um, of course, I, I love other actors, anything with Vincent Price, I love. Um, but the thing is, when those, when those characters are, are, when they're playing a character and they come on the screen, there's an entrance. You know, they, they give sort of this entrance moment where they come on screen. They have, they have you know, charisma. Um, and you build the story around the characters, not the other way around. We got a story, insert some characters and cool effects and everything, and we're done. You know, no, uh, it's, it's, it's terrible. Uh, we're losing, you know, and, and to me, Heston, you know, was one of the last greats that we had, you know, um, same thing with the music, getting back to the music. Oh, we don't want a score that draws attention to itself. We just want some noise in the background. And even worse, film directors will want to hire a film composer and then tell them what to, what to create. Here, make it sound exactly like this, this temp music, and they'll give you a music from some other film. Um, and there's a whole series of documentaries about temp music uh, that you can watch there's one called the marvel music universe where it starts you'll know you've got the right one when it's when it starts with the, someone walking around on the man on the street and saying hey uh whistle your favorite uh, john uh, star wars music you know or john williams music and they'll they'll start you know whistling the themes you know great uh now whistle your favorite marvel music from say this movie or any marvel uh, theme you know any marvel music just whistle it for me people are like uh mm, uh i don't i don't really remember and so back to my grandfather whistling in the room when he walked in the room. Why is that? Because musically, our society has moved from a melody-driven or melody-aware, I don't know what term you want to use there, society to a rhythmic beat-driven society. We've, we've lost sort of the idea of, of melody. I mean, it's not, obviously, we're, I'm generalizing. It's not completely gone. It's just, mm-hmm. in general, the music is, is dumbed down. The chord progressions chosen for pop tunes Think about how complex some of the Beatles stuff was in chord progressions compared to like Lady Gaga. And I love Lady Gaga. I'm not saying that, that you know, I'm not, it's not about her and her singing and her, her artistry. She's amazing. She's extremely talented and she plays you know, piano really well and all that. But the song crafting itself is more about the production, the sound of things, the rhythmic elements than chord progressions and, uh, and all that. Now with her, some of the melodies are very catchy. That that is that is good, but the, it, the it's the backgrounds, the chord progressions that don't don't do much. Sure, sure, that's interesting. It's you know, it's, it's 
You're right, too, because I remember my grandfather always whistling, man. He always, out in the ranch, fishing, anything. You couldn't talk when you were hunting, but he could whistle. Didn't matter. They have, they have all these melodies in their head that they were, they, they were, back then, all they did was hear songs. And, and actually, it started with the piano. The first shared music, besides, you know, humming it to each other, when they first started the document music, it was done in, in sheet music form, basically. You'd write the music down on a piece of, of notation and hand it to someone else, and then they could play that. And so the sheet music industry became really big. Everyone had a piano in their house because everyone, it's somebody in your family could play the piano because that was their only way to, to experience music was by playing it. You couldn't go buy a record. Well, then at some point, yeah, we got wax, wax, uh, you know, uh, 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 what do they call them, the, the cylinders, wax cylinder records, and then we got you know, records. And then at some point sheet music shifted over to records. So then everyone bought records and shared records and the pianos all went away. Less people would play the instrument. Um, you'd see the old piano in the corner of the bar now getting you know, out of tune because no one's using it anymore. And uh, <laughs> so on and so forth, you know, that's kind of the, the evolution of that. And that all ties into actual music, music theory. Uh, we have, we have melody, we have harmonization. Um, I know just enough to be dangerous. I went to music, music theory school for a couple of years and got some basics. And then I've actually learned most of it since that point, kind of on my own by teaching. <laughs> I've, I've taught music and uh, music production, recording and all that, as well as filmmaking. And then as a film composer, that's the job. You know, you're, you're working with, with these elements, these 12 tones. Uh, and uh, I just, I'm reminded, I'm getting sad because I'm reminded about Eddie Van Halen, uh, Eddie Van Halen passing away yesterday. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough loss for music uh, across the board. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, it's uh, all of these end of the world movies, all these apocalyptic films, you know, Omega Man being one of them, obviously, you know, is the, uh, you've got a, a group of vagrants and bad people and you've got some standalones. And I'm wondering, you know, like I'm always, if whether it's a plague or, you know, Yellowstone pops. I just want to be close. Just take me up quick. I don't want to be Charlton Heston. I don't want to be eaten up by the mobs. I'm not going to join those crazy groups. So I'm either going to be chased down and murdered or, but I'm not surviving like, I'm no Tim Kennedy. I'm not surviving like Charlton Heston. Where do you, in the apocalypse of the, on the end of times, where do you, who do you see yourself as? Or do you want to be close or do you want to try to ride it out and see what happens and, and keep us, if you will, whistling and humming through, uh, through our hard times to remember the good times. Because I don't have any of those talents, so I'm just an asshole that talks too much. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll try to write it out. I mean, uh, that was part of the fun of the Omega Man as a kid. That's, that's, a, that's a whole nother, you know, because some of the things that, the reason that Omega Man, uh, you know, inspired me, I understand now. And, uh, and some of them are, are legit you know, musical reasons, if you want to even, but, but from a film standpoint, from a fantasy standpoint, of course, as a kid, a young lad, the idea of that character, Charlton Heston, you know, just doing what he wanted and, and, and just being, you know, in charge of things and, and all by himself in a way is kind of cool in, in, in the wrong way. Like you, you think it's cool, it's not cool. <laughs> but when you're a kid, you think it's cool, you know. Uh, look, he gets a, a pick any car he wants, he can, he can dress how he wants. He can stay up late. He can do whatever he wants. You know, you're a kid. You don't, you don't understand the, the real ramifications of that. So, so that part spoke to me. Um, so, but do I, do I think now I want that, you know, um, thinking about obviously when I, I actually did watch the Omega Man myself um, for the first time in a few years, I have a Blu-ray copy, uh, probably 
four months ago, something like, somewhere in the middle of this pandemic, shortly after the pandemic started. And I did kind of go, I wonder how I'm going to feel about this. Is it going to change my viewpoint? It, 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 not really. I mean, I, I, I understand film is film and life is life. Mm-hmm. But, but it, did, it did make me feel a little empty. You know, it was a little bit of a, okay, that's, you know, that could be, this is a pretty real depiction, you know. And they, they did do that on purpose, by the way. I don't know if you're familiar with the novel. Um, I Am Legend is the novel. Yeah, and you know, the uh, Will Smith, um, and I'm not knocking Will Smith, uh, it, no offense to the I Am Legend movie fans out there, I don't think it holds a candle to the oh, not, not at all, not at all. And I, I love Will Smith, and I, I've got a story about Will Smith I can share with you. Oh, please do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's uh, drop, uh, drop some Get back to that. Um, but um, I'm just trying to get my train of thought. So yeah, in the, in the novel, the actual written novel by Richard Matheson, they are vampires, right? Just like we <laughs> think of vampires in the movies, but they're not. In the novel, vampirism, vampirism comes from a virus that affected humans to make them do the things that vampires do that we see as part of the legend. So it's sort of a mix of science and, 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 and fantasy in that <coughs> in the novel, and also the way they depicted it in the Vincent Price version of the film, Last Man on Earth. I don't know if you've seen that film. That's, that's, no. the, that's the actual first version of the Omega Man. It's called Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. It was shot, I believe, in Rome. It's in black and white. The print is not very good, but it's still pretty pretty cool movie. Um, they were vampires because we got a, an infection at some point, possibly. And, and that's what made them, this plague made them act like vampires, you know, who are like kind of zombie vampire-like. That's the, the story. So in Omega Man, they decided to do less of the vampire zombie thing. They just made them humans who are slightly insane because, you know, the situation. And they have like open sores and stuff to give them the sort of the zombie look. They're not zombies. They're just humans with open sores and, and you know, like the plague, you know, like the Black Death. And then, of course, in I Am Legend, he went the other way. He made them zombies, basically. And like that's not consistent with anything. And I didn't like it, you know. Um, personally, I didn't like it, that, that, uh, that film. So, but yeah, Will Smith. So, uh, you know, as a composer, I've done a bazillion short films, uh, many short films, a few feature films. Um, uh, the, uh, there was a film called I Love You, Will Smith. And uh, I work with uh, some, some friends for many years. I did many of their short films. These are some, some pretty cool guys. Um, and Bradley Jackson, David Ward, Russell Groves, Andrew Lee, um, they did this film called I Love You, Will Smith. You can look it up, you'll find it. And I did the score for that. And it's about a guy who's at his office. John Ramsey is the lead character and he's a comic. He's been on like a Conan and such. Um, he's a, an actor in a comic. He's kind of a local guy here, I believe. And he's in his office and someone's talking about how they love Will Smith. And I, I don't think there's one movie that I don't like uh, or, or one person on the planet who doesn't like Will Smith. And this guy <laughs> turns and he goes, I don't, and walks by, walks out. And the, the other guy, his coworker's like, what? And so he starts hounding him through the office, trying to, you know, showing him the movies. Hitch, you know, this, that, you know, come on, he's had, he's had unparalleled success in, in, you know, all these industries. Singer, dad, you know, he's, he's been an actor, he's been a you know, pop star, all these things. And uh, he's like, I don't know, just something about him I don't like. So finally the guy goes, goes nuts and he, he confronts the guy in the parking lot with a pistol. He's like, say you love Will Smith. Say you love Will Smith. He's like, okay, okay, I lied, I lied. I love Will Smith. Our first date, we watched, we watched this and we did this. And, we, and, uh, and I got to do a little Independence Day uh, knockoff theme at the end because the, the tag of the movie is that he, 
when he finally breaks down and cries and admits he, he loves Will Smith, the guy with the gun puts up a cigar and he goes, welcome to earth. <laughs> <laughs> As they're embracing <laughs> crying, let it out, son. And then we have a rap song called, um, well, it's Will Smith. It's, uh, you know, uh, the whole rap was done about all the things about Will Smith. Um, if I could be as Martin Lawrence, I would, you know, and uh, you know, that singing I am legend where he had to kill his dog left me feeling so sad. I was in the fog, you know, it has all these, these, these great raps. And then I did sort of a Michael, what I call the Michael, uh, uh, the guy from the doobies, um, um, harmony vocal chorus will smith is a man and believe it or not everybody is a fan <laughs> watch him every time i can because will smith is the best even though he made the wild wild west <laughs> i love it hey if there is you know if if you're stuck in omega man what um what city do you want to be stuck in Oh, wow. Hmm. It'd be fun to be near the beach. So maybe, maybe San Francisco. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Have to be, you know, you know, New York. I mean, that, those scenes in the front where the streets are completely barren. They had to shoot those on holidays. They had to shoot those really early in the morning. And you can still see, if you look really close, there's a, like a little bit of movement in this one little corner, I think, um, mm -hmm. of something they didn't quite get out, you know. And they didn't bother to do digital effects back then in those days. No, it's interesting. I'm watching him right now. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's gone through the hotel and he's, uh, he's now in a shopping center and he's picking out different clothes. And yeah, you know, yeah, he's taking to, his, his Roseanne cash here. Yeah, and he's taking his, uh, his cologne bath, you know, where he's just. And there's going on the floor when he's done. But I also, I love the fact that, you know, in this, it's so crazy. He's, you know, he's, might be the only normal person in the city, city or so he thinks he's trying to find other people and he's still like put on your clean clothes dress nice wear your cologne make your hair done yeah you're still you, showing up to work. to work you talk to yourself because you have to stay sane um there's the film with david bowie merry christmas mr lawrence remember mm -hmm. that film yep and where he pantomimes because he's in he's in prison you know he's, he's in, in in lockdown or whatever and he, to keep his sanity, he pantomimes shaving, even though he has nothing, you know, he, he, to keep his sanity. It's part of the, part of the, you know, I love that. That's a great, uh, great part, thing. Part of the ritual. What are some of the, uh, what are some of your rituals that get you ready for the day? I mean, cause it seems like, you know, the, the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the perception might be is that because you're an artist and so, you know, and, and you, and you work with you know, other musicians and you're working with, uh, with filmmakers and writers and everything else. It's you're up till five in the morning. You go to bed at 6am. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately me, I'm, you know, and there's a lot of discussion here. If uh, we want to go down whichever road we want to go down. So first off I am, and we, and we need to get back to the, well, the first question, which I never really answered. I only answered part of it, <clears throat> which is, you know, what, how did I get into this and who am oh, I yeah. and all that? Hi. My name is Mark Tommy Wilson. I'm an actor. I'm a film composer. I'm a post-production specialist. I teach filmmaking at Austin Community College. I also perform Magic Live as Marilyn the Wise at Sherwood Forest Fair, Renaissance Festival, Hogtown Festival. I'm the entertainment director for uh, Evermore Festival. Um, so I do a bunch of stuff in Renfrew. So I'm, I'm all over the map. My point is, um, and I'm also a professional Santa Claus. There you go. Uh, so 
I got into this back in the day. In, 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 you almost have to start in high school. In high school, I was in band. I took I played piano. I took piano lessons. Didn't do a lot with the piano lessons. My mother was a piano teacher as well, but she sent me down the street because she didn't think she should teach me. But my my family was a musical background. My grandmother was choir director. My grandfather was superintendent of the schools and then went into insurance and all that. So when I got out of high school, uh, like you said earlier, like, how do you become a film composer? You know, what do you do? I knew I wanted to be a film composer, but I didn't know how to achieve the goal. And I really had subpar music theory understanding. I just had a great ear. I had a great ear and I was, you know, the technique with my hands, I, I was pretty, you know, I could tell I had some aptitude. I played the trombone, I played a little guitar, I'd started taking guitar at age 16 and I played some piano. And I would try to learn, you know, Queen songs and electrolyte orchestra songs and Rick Wakeman and, and try to sing and I wasn't very good. And, and I'd get on the drum set in the band hall and the band director would yell at us, you know, and get off the piano, go practice your trombone couple of little bands and whatever. So when I got to college age, when I graduated high school, I worked for a while. I finally went to school as a music major. And when I got to the real world of the, you know, the, the small fish in the big pond at the university level, I realized I just didn't know anything. And I was way behind with theory and I'm terrible at math and music theory has a lot of math related to it. It's just not my strength um, from an academic standpoint. I was always really good with literature and drama and reading and such. I did do a tiny bit of acting, by the way, because I always liked to, having watched all these Hammer films and English films, I would do voices and voice acting just for fun, and do silly voices and all that. By the way, your, your impersonation of that guy in the bar it sounded like it was pretty darn... Uh, oh, thank you. There. Very kind. Thank you. So, uh, and I've produced thousands and thousands of hours of voiceover for years. About 10 years, I did that as part of my day, day, daily job of being a composer. And, and the other thing I had to do was do voiceover production for CD-ROM games and edutainment titles. Uh, I worked for a company called Human Code, and it was a software developer in Austin from like 93 to 2002, roughly. Um, that's how I got my professional start. Moving into the story, I guess I should just go there. I, so I, I, went to, uh, I went to school, did about three semesters of uh, music theory and, and being a music ed major, made some great friends, played in some uh, bands, some lifelong friends, got into Dungeons and Dragons and all that, and uh, kind of dropped out of school, went back to work until at some point when my dad said, my dad being a dentist said, you should be a dental lab technician. Why? Because he's a dentist. And because you're good with your hands and, you know, you, you obviously have no future <laughs> currently. <laughs> so I said, okay. I'd worked at the newspapers and circulation, all kinds of stuff, route managing, all that. Worked at radio stations, various things. I played in some bands, played in, started playing in country bands on the weekend in the Texas dance hall circuit. So I did years of, well, excuse me. I have a piano in front of me. Well, excuse me. Anyway, I won't worry about that. But, um. Marina Del Rey, all that stuff. Uh, George, a lot of George Strait, Restless Heart back in the 90s, and um, a little bit of Garth. Thinking, thinking, remembering back to those days, lots of, lots of hours playing late night gigs. Mm -hmm. And then I had some recording projects with a friend. We did some rock and roll. I learned a little bit about engineering, live sound, computers, MIDI sequencing, got into computers and all that. And at some point, um, after I got out of school, being a dental lab technician, I worked in that field for a period of time. I put a listing in the Texas Film Commission Guide, which is a, a directory we have. It used to be printed. Now it is online and virtual. It's a great resource. The governor's, governor's office has uh, the, the uh, there's a music branch and then there's a filmmaking branch. 
And then about that time, they created tax incentives to help promote filmmaking in Texas. And I put a listing in that guide and said, hey, I can do this, multi-track recording. I'd been buying equipment and setting up my, my studio capabilities. And I can do this style of music. I can do digital recording, blah, blah, blah. And someone called me, basically. I don't think I've gotten but three calls in like 40 years on that ad. But the <laughs> call I got, one that mattered, was in around 92. And it was from the Human Code Company. They were doing, they wanted to contract me to do music for a CD-ROM project called The Cartoon History of the Universe. And I went down to the local music store and got a rented a DAT tape machine, you know, digital audio tape. That's what they used to use in the old days. And um, I think I bought one little sound module and maybe a controller and I did some stuff and sent it into them. And they said, yeah, this is great. They looked at the images and listened to my music at the same time. And the rest they say is history. I got hired to do that project. And then when, that, when I was done with the contract work on that, I actually stole some other sections of the, of the project from another composer. And when he submitted his stuff and I submitted my stuff, they were like, oh, wait, this guy is way more on the money than this guy. And the silly thing is that other guy had some pretty high-end uh, equipment. He was, he was definitely more experienced, but I, just, I think I did a better job of, of capturing the, the mood they wanted. And after that was done, they had me come back in and mix in my music because I knew where it went. And so they paid me to do that. And then they brought me in to help mix sound effects and, and voices. It was about seven hours of audio. We, we worked with all the actors in town. A lot of famous people were on there because uh, there were so many characters. And when that was done, they got funding and they became a company. And then they offered me a job. And I went to work, you know, day to day as, as a composer, as a lead composer for Human Code, Inc., as soon as I was in the office to take that, that position on, they were like, hey, we need you to record all these voice files and uh, cast all these actors and, you know, and set up these auditions and process these sound effects. So it kind of became a, a production side of things. And then we would set up uh, video shoots and uh, you know, just on and on. I did, we did projects for Discovery Channel, um, you know, uh, the business to business stuff. At some point I moved over into that area. We did Schoolhouse Rock. I did all the Schoolhouse Rock music. I kind of yes. recreated that. Yeah, isn't that fun? Um, yeah, I'm just a boo. Oh, yeah. I got really good at doing the voice, even though we didn't use it on the recordings because I had to do the music and we, were, we had an actor doing the voice of Bill. Sure. But, you know, I was just talking to a friend about that. You know, we were talking about <clears throat> education and the election and, and the voting and the importance of understanding who has power and where they have power and what it means. I mean, Joe Rogan famously said a couple of weeks ago, he goes, I never knew the importance of having a good mayor until I saw what happened in Los Angeles. And that's why I moved to Austin. And I remember how important a mayor is because I remember Schoolhouse Rock. And I knew about bills, I knew about the House, I knew about the Senate, I knew about the Supreme Court, I knew about the mayor, I knew about the governor. They taught it all to you, and they did it without a political agenda. They did it just in a fun, musical way that as soon as you heard it, you knew what was going on. That little rolled up piece of paper had come skipping down those steps, and you knew exactly what was up. Yeah, no, it was, it was a great series, and uh, there's about three or four composers that worked on those. Um, uh, amazing stuff, excuse me. <coughs> amazing stuff. I, um, I, had a th I had a blast doing it. Um, I did Wishbone. I did the music for a Wishbone title. If you go onto YouTube, you'll find uh, uh, Wishbone and the Amazing Odyssey. It's an animated Wishbone. We had the real Wishbone in the front uh, done in, over green screen in a virtual library, and then he gets zapped into the 
the the um, machine that make teleports him back in time as an animated as um, Ulysses or Odysseus, depending on which mm -hmm. version you're reading. And uh, we got to work with Larry Brantley, who was the voice of Wishbone. And uh, I've got that little figurine somewhere in my, my little plush toy in my collection of, of memorabilia. But that was fun. We worked with Discovery Channel doing uh, Operation Weather Disaster, where we had the evil weatherman. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of titles from the 90s that are sort of what we call edutainment. Yep. Not real games, but there's games with learning involved. Sure. Now, qu question for you, uh, and <clears throat> a little caveat here, a little side thing. I'd gone to school for communications, and earlier in school, uh, I was a pastoral ministries major, and they actually politely asked me to leave. It probably had a lot to do with my drinking and my love of women and my love of gambling. But nonetheless, I would, I still, like, if I go to church today, and I hear a pastor start to speak, I can almost write down where he's going to go with the sermon, the direction he's going to go, his call to action. And then, well, you know, the offering plate already came around, but there's going to be this, this, and this, you're going to close this way. And so it's very hard for me to like sit down and, and be, you know, hear a speaker and be engaged because I can sense the theme and know where it's going. And I'm wondering whether it's an outdoor concert or you go see a movie, how do you turn that? Can you turn that part of your brain off and just get rawly entertained? Or is there always a part of you where it's on and you're like, damn it, I wish I could have helped this person out. Um, it's a little bit of both. Uh, yeah, there is the curse of knowledge is, 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 you know, you start watching a film and, and you immediately go, Oh, here's the plot. Oh, here's the thing. And Oh, look, they didn't, they didn't like focus the shot right. And why are they doing so much handheld? I watched a, a, a pretty high profile uh, crime drama recently and the handheldness of the camera, which was done to give it some, it, it helps establish a sense of realism was too much it drew attention to itself in a bad way like i just i started noticing that more than paying attention to the story and now the question is is it because i know stuff does the average person try try to focus on the story and just get the feeling that they're going for and not notice why they're feeling the way they're, they're feeling and i and i because i'm educated about that particular topic realize what's going on and know why it bothers me you know when blair witch came out everyone you know they it was like this is awesome um that one didn't bother me as even though i i got the nausea feeling you know from just too long of an experience with the moving camera it didn't annoy me that it did that it looked real it looked like they really did just have shaky camera because they were dealing with stuff you know but this is there's nothing going on they're just conversing but yet the camera is very you know moving all over the place so it's like yeah, yeah, yeah which show it was um no, I'm with you on that. You know, they, I watched Blair Witch. Uh, uh, it didn't really captivate me. I was surprised at. Uh, I'm yeah, happy, I, but I, was, I was also happy for him. And a question for you: I asked this to, to Elizabeth as well because I don't understand this, and she answered it very well. But I keep I like to ask smart people this question, especially in the movie side of things. You will get a Blair Witch that gets you know I don't know five hundred thousand dollars, and it makes a hundred million. Right. So the gamble was 500 grand and really hardly any marketing. It was really word of mouth, right? It is that proven word of mouth. And it's a, it's a fun film and people really loved it. And then you'll have 20 hundred million dollar films, not to pick on Kevin Costner, but Waterworld, The Postman, you know, all these things. Mm. And, they flop, and they flop miserably. I mean, you look at Johnny Depp's films of how much he gets paid versus how much the film grosses and he's bankrupting every film he's been in. Right. And, and I'm wondering, why 
who, does it take some people to die? I mean, what's going on where they aren't yeah. looking at this role of independent, especially in a time like today, right? At this role of independent films and go, you know what, maybe, just maybe, 30% of our budget should go to independent versus two. I agree, oh, hands down. They need to support the independent filmmakers. Um, and that's my space, that's the world I live in. I'm currently working on a feature film, Gypsy Moon, directed and written by um, my friend, Tony Gibson, excuse me. Yep. <coughs> and uh, he's also in development for a Western series called Fox and the Bounty. And he's written a role for me in that series and I'm, I'll be doing the score as well. But I, I started with Gypsy Moon. I had a, a small part in that and I'm doing the score for that. And as I mentioned before, because I do video editing and uh, visual effects and stuff, um, I'm now doing video stuff on that project. So uh, we're trying to get that, that out the door. I've got another friend who's a director, Nate Locklear, who is doing a film called God Made Man. That's in post-production. So I've helped with uh, all the post on that, dubbing and such, mainly audio on that one. But I've got a, a scene in that as well. I'm an actor in that as well. So it's sort of my, my personal strategy. It wasn't planned this way, but I've just sort of become to realize this over the many years of dealing with actors and acting and productions and production work, that as an actor, the actor side of me, which is a smaller portion of what I do, even though in some ways I've got more notoriety in that area because one of, one of the films I did was a pretty pretty big independent film. It's called Land of Leopold. Yeah, I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm actually on cast in that. Uh, I don't have any lines, but I've got you know a couple of good, great shots and, and uh, Ray Wise talks to my character and got a single shot of me just playing the piano that's beautifully lit and you know a lot of a lot of stuff going on there um so what what i've discovered is my strategy even though it wasn't a strategy it's sort of an after the fact strategy is i don't really audition that well um i'm a character actor i have all these kind of special skills that most actors don't have i mean i'm just i have all these other things i can do that the average actor probably can't can't do but on the flip side i don't claim to be the greatest actor either right it's and and that's part of the trick of a character actor is you don't act right you have to just be yourself and so i'm always trying to better myself and uh and keep myself you know from not overdoing things and all that you have to understand the difference between stage acting and and camera acting and i've got a lot of uh, sort of improv stage acting work because I perform live magic shows for thousands of people, hundreds of people, depending on the situation. And so I've got many years of doing that. So I'm, I have a, a sort of a different viewpoint and approach, but how do I get roles is the part where I've just sort of discovered my strategy is that I don't, I wait for them to be someone to ask me. So I make friends with film directors. I work on their projects doing film scoring and production. And then at some point they go, actually, you'd be great for this role and they give me a role. And I don't, that way I don't get the heartbeat, the heartbreak quite as much as, uh, as some of my other acting friends who work really hard at, at, at uh, auditioning. Uh, and I've, I used to be on the other side of the couch. Like I've done, I'm the one that held the auditions for years when I worked at Human Code. I would cast daily. So I've worked with all the agencies. I've worked with all of the talent that's been in, in the Austin area for many years. And um, so that experience definitely helps when I'm doing an audition, but I've, I still feel like, personally, I feel like I have a I'm not real good at it, you know, depending on the role, but I'll, I will cherry pick. I'll say this role I will audition for because I already know I'm going to get this role unless I just completely blow it. And uh, I've been pretty, pretty high percentage. Uh, I'll send a photo or I'll come do that read and then and I'll get it. But I just don't audition very much because I know I probably won't get it. Question for you about, about auditioning, because it brings up uh, something that I've, I've often wondered about, you know, when it comes to actors and, and across the board and, and versus someone who's kind of found a, a niche and, a, and an alternative method. 
I wonder, because you work with them and you see them and you, you get to see them at their highs, right? And assuming because you've casted or not casted people, you've kind of seen them at their lows, maybe bumping into them at the HEB or the Taco Maria or whatever is around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How, how do you, what do you I mean? I wonder what the psychological makeup is, not in a negative way, but the psychological makeup is that allows you to deal with so much rejection. You have to be tough. I think Elizabeth, I, I may have been Elizabeth that mentioned that, but uh, I, I know I've heard many of actor and actress talk about that. You, you really, you, it's just, you have to get a hard shell. And um, I've developed that not so much on the acting side. I got it from the magic side. Uh, I'm a magician and we have fraternal groups. We have these, you know, these organizations where we all come together and talk about magic. And a lot of the people in the, in, in the organization, there are many um, hobbyists, there are many semi-professionals, which I guess in, uh, technically that would still be me because I don't do it full time, but I do it at a professional level when I do it. And I get paid, obviously, when I, when I do it. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have full-time professionals that are in the uh, members of the club, typically not as many of them because they're busy being full-time professionals. And at some point, if they elevate their status to a certain level, then they don't have time for the magic clubs. But magicians are the best of the you know the old guitar player joke how many people to, to change a change a light how many guitar players to change a light bulb you know one to change the light bulb and 99 to, to stand around and go i could do that you know pictures uh, <laughs> are the worst they they want to give you feedback on everything they want to tell you you suck at everything they want to and it's sort of messed up because they don't really know your goals they don't know what what it is that you're you know you're trying to accomplish and, and sure, i might sure. have a completely different agenda or goal than someone other performer and what do you I know, did, real quick on the magic thing, real quick, I interrupt, but <clears throat> do you know uh, Richard Turner? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah I did. I, he did the podcast with me. It was a uh, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Now that was one of the reasons I got, ex I got excited and said, Hey, I'd like to be on that podcast. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So you remember the, the, I love you, Will Smith. Yeah. The filmmakers that made dealt are those same guys. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that I, same company, all those same people. He was, I mean, that's a guy who, it broke my heart watching the rejection that he went through throughout the years of showing up. I mean, you know, what do you want the guy to do? He's blind and he's doing, you know, they still won't let him deal cards in Vegas, you know? And then they're like, nah, maybe next year. I'm like, I mean, I, and that's where I bring it up because of you talking about magic and, and this rejection part and what are you going for? And I mean, I, and sometimes I wonder as talented as the man is, I don't see him as a card mechanic. I don't see him as a black belt. I see him as this humanitarian trying to tell people that you can do anything. And he's been lumped into these two other categories because he's really good at them. But it's like saying Jimmy Carter was the president. He was, but he's a much better humanitarian with Habitat for Humanity. Yeah. I yeah. think he gets judged because he's doing so much with kids, You're helping out. Does yeah. That make no, sense? Richard was a huge inspiration. Yeah, no, I, uh, I feel the same way. Yeah. I think it's, you get, you know, people like to, the, the term is pigeonhole, I think, where they yeah. kind of sum you up in the first five seconds and go, this is the kind of person you are, and this is what you're good at. Um, I, I used to go through that. And that's also about their needs at the time. Uh, when I learned, when I became a, learned about a recording and started being a, mus a musician and trying to be a songwriter and a composer and all that, the guy that I worked with, who was my mentor in, in some ways, he had his studio and he would explain how things were. And I would ask questions, but we had a, we had a so, kind of a songwriting partnership and I was, we were in a band together, our own, our own project. And I would be trying to learn to play bass or line, learning to play drums. And he would be like, Mark, Mark, don't play drums. Don't play drums. I try to sing you like Mark, don't, don't sing. Like, don't sing Mark. 
and uh, and then I'd be like, can you can you just like play some piano on this? Because he he wanted me to play piano because he couldn't do that, and so he encouraged me to play piano. But everything else, no, don't you're really not you're not really quite ready. Don't do that, you know. And had I listened and and said, okay, fine, I'm just going to work on this one instrument, I'd be a little bit better piano player, and I wouldn't be able to do I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be able to do things that I can do now because I play drums, piano, guitar, little fiddle, mandolin, trombone, sing all kinds of guitar, you know, finger picking, acoustic, classical, rock, you know, whatever, bass, you know, I, I put it all together. I can, I can play all the instruments because I was stubborn, you know. Is that uh, innate? Is that a DNA thing, music? And I, and I ask that because, I mean, not only am I tone deaf, I, I, they're, not, they're not giving me the tambourine in a white choir, all right? I mean, <laughs> they're not even giving me the triangle, okay? I'm just not, it's not, there's a, there, I love music though too. This is the part that breaks my heart is I love, I love music. I mean, I love everything. My poor daughter was tortured. I say this a lot on the podcast, so I apologize to, to the listeners, but like, I mean, you know, she was, my wife had a C-section and so she slept on my side of the bed at first. And I'd get up at, you know, midnight, and two or three in the morning and change the diaper and feed her. And that was my time to indoctrinate her with just the best and the worst music money can buy. I mean, Muddy Waters, she takes a shower, Muddy Waters is on, right? I mean, she's just, she loves Spanish boys. She loves all, she loves anything Muddy Waters and deep, deep old blues. But she also loves, she also loves Huey Lewis in the news and Toad the Wet Sprocket. So I've, I've tortured her with, <laughs> with pop 80s and 90s and then slid in some really, really good early blues and then some nice solid 70s rock that some could claim is horrible anyways and i but she loves music right and she wants to play the guitar and i i I got a guitar from some artist that signed it and you know gave it to me and i don't i pick that thing up and it instantly goes out of tune so is it it in you is the music in you or is it something that she can learn because i'm afraid i might have passed this on to her and i'm gonna feel horrible I don't know. Um, I mean, I can't, I, because you don't know what's inside other people. I don't know why some people seem to have a, a, you know, a more of an aptitude than others. I don't know if it's mental. I don't know if it's DNA. You just, I don't know. But I, but I do know from a technical standpoint, you, you know, you can, you can learn. You just need some, the right starting direction and, and, and the urge to go. But I think if you have, if you have a desire and then your conditions allow you to spend time with it a little bit each day, then you can grow and you can, you can, you can enjoy it, you know, and that's really it. If you, it's really about what you want to do with the music and you know, what you want to do to enjoy it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I beat myself up all the time. I suck, you know, I suck at this. I suck at that. I'm, you know, I want to be better at this. And I, and, and then you're, there's always someone way better than you in, in any one part of the, of the, uh, of the journey, so to speak, especially when you're looking at one in, instrument compared to instrument, you know, the, this guy is way better than, you know, than I'll ever be on that instrument. Mm-hmm. But I've also come to realize that if I just get over the bar on each thing and I can put it together, then I'm able to sort of get higher level results without having to be a superstar in any one. And you learn tricks, you learn sort of little coping mechanisms, little, uh, little uh, sort of theory applied to technique tricks, you know. When you get to piano, you start thinking, oh, you know, if I play a sus- suspended fourth chord, that's a suspended fourth chord. That sounds really cool. And if I do it in arpeggiated form, it's just a, it's just a, it's a parlor trick. It's just a, it's like the little kids. And that's why you are, there's always a video of a kid on YouTube playing Eddie Van Halen 
better than Eddie because they've had years in watching him and be able to do it. Even though he invented it, they, you know, they, they learned where I didn't have that when I was a kid. I had to figure that out when I was 40 because there wasn't videos of some of these little, how he did some of these things, you know. And didn't he also at some point, I mean, in, in all respect, Eddie Van Halen, at some point when people are copying so much, he would play with his back to the audience. Um, I, Jeff Beck did that too, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, you hear about it. I've not seen a lot of that. Maybe when he was young, he did it at mm -hmm. certain points. But, I mean, you can't, you obviously can't, you know, for everything. I, sure, probably sure. when it first came out, it was pretty revolutionary and they had to. Well, it's like, I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, you talk about drumming. I mean, Neil Peart, some would say, you know, is from Russia. I'm, I'm a huge Neil Peart. Uh, there's a video of me playing subdivision somewhere on drum kit. I mean, that's, he's one of my <laughs> hugest influences. So yeah, it's been a shitty year. We lost Neil. We lost, now we lost Eddie. Neil hit me harder than Eddie did, but I, I mean, yeah. both of them are sad. My, uh, my, I had a neighbor, uh, I grew up in Big Fork, Montana, and uh, I had this neighbor and he lived a three houses away and across a, some trees and hills and everything else, this little subdivision. Great drummer. Rush was his favorite. And I could mow the lawn at my house and hear him practicing the drums. And I mean, he had the full Neil setup. Like his parents bought him the whole thing. And he was very accomplished. I mean, he was getting music scholarships, obviously, and doing stuff. But one thing that I, you know, that I always found interesting, he's like, man, I'm never going to be that good. But the one thing that I always liked is he was that brave. He was that brave to go after it. He was that brave to chase it. And, and I think, you know, when you talk about these little tricks, these little parlor tricks, or you're doing this a little differently. I mean, I look at that as, 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 a, as a bravery mechanism that, that compels you to keep going. It's like that little chunk of fuel that goes, yeah, you're right. I'm not whoever a great piano person is, and I apologize, I don't know. But whoever that person may be, right? Billy, Billy Joel. I don't know how good he is at the piano. But Billy Joel was a really good piano player. He had a wreck, a motorcycle wreck or something that kind of knocked him down a notch, but he was a really good piano player. But, you know, Rick Wakeman is an idol, uh, one of my idols. That's where that comes from, this lick here. You're doing, you're moving that around each octave, right? And he would do this thing where he would hold the chord. I've got to move this here. I'm actually three feet away from the piano, so I'm reaching way out like a, like a monkey. <laughs> Then you go to another chord, suspended fourth. Yeah, it's just moving that same. It's like a, I call it the toolkit, you know. And it's true in every every art form, you you increase your toolkit. You know, you learn a little thing, you apply it a certain way, and then you add to it. And drumming is exactly the same thing. It's like you learn how to hold the sticks. And how to hit things and and let the sticks do a little bouncing and let them do some of the work and not use too much arm then you learn rudiments where you do a certain pattern you know right right left left right left right right whatever you know paradiddles things like that right left right right left right left left and you just practice that you know and you put that on your hands and you move it around the kit and you do it with your feet foot hand foot foot you know hand foot hand hand you know you, you move these these patterns around they call them rudiments and so you, you do a little bit of learning, a little bit of the theory, then you make your muscles and body come up a notch. And then you think about it a while. And uh, I like drumming is a great thing because I feel like of all the instruments, drumming is the one thing where you can use your brain to elevate yourself. Um, I mean, obviously there's a part of physical, physicality you've got to master to, to get the techniques deployed, 
but you can improve your, your understanding of what the goal is and how to deal with it by using your mind. Uh, understanding that you need to relax, that you need to let the sticks work and how you set your drums up. And Neil was great about that. He actually went through a whole uh, period of self-discovery and journey and reinventing himself, as he called it. And if you watch those videos, they're, they're helpful. So that's, that's, that's how I went about it anyways, sort of getting, you know, I'd spend some time playing, but I'd spend some time thinking about it. I can think about the piano, but it's not going to get me as much uh, as far I need to practice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Random left-hand term as this, as this podcast is full of them, but I, I, a question for you on this. And Omega Man, you know, highlights this is, you know, we've got about 30 minutes left in the movie, I think. And you see Charlton Heston and he's, he's flirting with this African-American woman, right? I mean, this is, and so why is it, from your insights, why is the bravery of breaking down social constructs and barriers left to science fiction and horror films where it's almost like people are either A, we've just come so far, we can now travel together, or B, this is a horrific moment, but look, we can always work together. Why is it left to those to break barriers versus mainstream doing that as well? Yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I have to. I might. I might come with come up with a with a brilliant answer uh, uh, Tuesday. I don't know. <laughs> and of course, what we're specifically in the Omega Man, the re the real thing that we're talking about here is that that actually was um, the first feature film, I believe, to to feature an interracial lovemaking kissing scene. That's my understanding. So Rosalind Cash is the actress, the uh, actress. Beautiful woman. And Great actress, too. Oh, amazing. Yeah, amazing. She did some other stuff that I, I, I sought out and, and watched. There's a, a couple other horror things, too, but some mainstream stuff. And all of it's good. Um, I, I wish there were more. I didn't see a lot, but there is some stuff out there you can find of her. And, of course, Charlton Heston is this, you know, he was, he was a big star. You know, he was he just, like, represented so much. And of course, the the uh, Jesus, I uh, you know, religious sort of um, symbolism, uh, the way that you know in the film, Adam and Eve, last man on earth, and then him in the in the pose of Jesus, you know, when he dies at the end. There's you know, it's, there's all this stuff going on there. So I don't know if that was an an agenda. I mean, I've seen films. Um, I, I've been involved, and and it's again, it's just the way it works out. One of the films I'm currently working um, with is um is a, a really dark film and it has to do with um trans characters the main characters are, are trans and so it's a it's 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 all in that world and you know i've seen films that were um had a gay director the male gay director and all the characters were gay and that director uses his film as his his podium you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get my message across really hard on this film. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I, you know, just, and it's, 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 it's too obvious. It, it kills the film. It's just like, it, it isn't, it isn't, you know, just make a movie that's good. If you want to have gay characters, have gay characters. Let us get to know those characters. Let us see their lives. Let us see what's going on. But don't, don't, you know, don't, don't try to do it in a way that it draws attention to itself. And it's, it's a very fine line. And of course, you know, you have to, you don't want to offend anyone when you're trying to talk about these subjects. Because it's, it's it's some people are very very passionate about it for obvious reasons they should be you know that's it is that is the, the goal of filmmaking I guess one could argue is is a, a vehicle for um, getting your ideas out and uh, and uh, trying to educate you know there there's actually a thing in in the planning called the process message you know what is your process message what do you want people to feel think 
or actually do as an action item as a result of watching your film. That's part of the planning. When you, when you create your documents, your treatments and such, that's what you, you come up with. And so I don't know. I don't know when they made the Omega Man, did they say, and we want to show that people of different races can fall in love and just be people because at the point civilization falls apart, does it matter if you're black or white or red or green or whatever, right? It doesn't matter. At that point, you're just only people on earth. And so it, it, does, it does make sense that that would be a good way to send that powerful message. Um, Roddenberry tried to do it. You know, Gene Roddenberry did it in, in Star Trek. He tried to yeah, right. As much of that in there as he could, and as and as we know, he 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 had an affair with uh, Nicole Nichols. You know, <laughs> she was in his office wearing a coat. I think it was. He's wearing his jacket or wearing nothing, and she and Majel was coming in one door, and his wife was coming in the other door, and so out she went through the through the office wearing his jacket only. You know, <laughs> good work. I mean, it's, it, that's, you know, that's the Star Trek episode with the half black, half white, half, half white, half black. Oh yeah, but they're black on the right side. You know, that he was trying to get it in there. Um, so I, that, that's probably what I, what I think. I think they were, they were trying to get across the idea that, you know, at the point of this, this sort of, you know, earth shattering situation where no humans are alive at that point, race, race goes out the window, you know, and, and that's probably why they, they, they cast a black woman in that act that for that lead role and had them have, have a love affair, fall in love. Um, I'm just reminded of, uh, Red Fox who said, uh, um, married outside of her race, what'd she marry? A duck? <laughs> Red Fox, you know, good work, sir. And uh, very, very well put. I, I am, uh, I'm always blown away a little bit, you know, by the fact that at some point in time, this was, uh, you know, shocking. And now it's interesting because, you know, and you, you see this in, you know, and, and I'll bring this back to music, right? Music creates a relationship. And you go back and you, re, you revisit that relationship and you bring, you know, there's nostalgia and sometimes you'll add new memories to it. Sometimes you just reminisce on the old memories, but it brings things back. It can help heal trauma. It can, there's so much it can do. I mean, it can help you drive for 24 straight hours if you need it to. And so I just, I wonder, you know, we, we've got these great movies that go from, you know, from Star Trek to, to Omega Man here and moving forward, but we just, you know, we keep it in the movies. Like, I, you know, all this stuff that's happening in the world right now, all the bad things that are happening and all the ways we're trying to, to remedy things. The one thing we're not doing is treating it like a relationship. Like if, if I believe we really wanted success, right? The mayors and uh, the other leaders, they would come together every three months with the leaders of African-American, Hispanic, Asian, transgender, gay, you know, the, the whole spectrum and go, hey, how are we doing as a community? How are we all getting along? What's going on, right? And we don't. Instead, we wait for bad things to happen, an explosion happens, oh goodness, what was that? And then boom, you know, uh, it goes away, there's an appeasement, but it's not a relationship, it's not, it's not a giving, it's not, it's not a, a understanding and receiving. And, and I wonder, you know, what can, a big question, but what do you think music can do to help maybe heal us again? Because I'm thinking of, you know, the 70s and the 80s. I mean, Live Aid, the Simple Coke song, We Are the World. I mean, like, where, 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 where's music at right now? 
Well, it always, I mean, that's one thing that's, that's, that's a good, that's the good news is that that has never gone away that the, the healing power of music and the, and the, that's something that people can share and it brings people together. And, uh, you know, do we need to make a specific, you know, we, we, we're going to survive the plague song, you know, probably not because so too campy, but, but I, I see it all the time. There are moments of, of, of very uplifting moments that I run across in social media from time to time. There's also a lot of bad stuff, you know, of course. But uh, I'll find things on YouTube where someone has done a sort of a long distance and they, you know, a bunch of people across the globe have put together a, a cover of a song that suddenly takes on new meaning. Um, there was a matter of fact, Styx has a song. Uh, I, unfortunately, I don't remember the name of it, but you can find it with a quick search. It was done in sort of an off period of Styx where they weren't quite as popular with the mainstream. One of their albums there. And I have a, a kind of a connection to... Um, one of the writers of that song, and the, he sang on the song, Glenn Burtnick. He's a, a Jersey boy, and uh, he was with Styx a couple times, and he plays with uh, the orchestra, which is what Electric Light Orchestra Part 2 became when they had to legally change their name. And he has his own band called The Weaklings. And so it was just a few weeks back when um, Styx put out this video of the song that was sung by James, I think it was James Young was on the, one of these songs, uh, was the main singer, I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, it was a very relevant to the situation song that's really powerful, way more powerful than when it came out, you know, but we, we missed the boat, you know. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's just, music will always heal. I don't know if it's, if, if there's a big answer with music, I don't know if it's going to save the world, but it's about making people feel better. So really people seek out music to help them when they, when they need it in times of need. Um, and that's something that I, I also personally miss because I, there's two sides. One, I don't have time. I have so many people wanting things from me, deadlines, projects, video edits, you know, I need this files. I need that. Um, I don't have time to just set aside and, and listen to music. And we as a society, we don't listen to music the way we used to. When I was a kid, buying an album was an album. You know, you got the whole record and it was an event. You brought that thing home, you put it on the turntable, you would say, leave me alone. You would sit down and listen to it front to back, one side, flip it over, listen to the whole thing again. And then if you were lucky, you could do that a few times. And then you would, maybe you'd drop the needle in between your songs, but if you were a purist like me, you didn't want to risk putting a pop, right? So you would just let it play all the way through. You had to, you had to invest. You had to take the time. You had to experience the whole album. And they were written, they were written in, in order. The tracks were ordered to give you an experience. Nowadays, YouTube, MP3, Spotify, part of a song, not even the whole song, part of a song, jump to this song. Hey, you heard this one? Jump to a little bit of this song. You know, we don't even listen to the music right anymore. And so it's changed the whole dynamic. But uh, I think people will still go out and search and find what, what they need when they, when they need healing or they want to remember or they want to feel a certain thing. We have things that, that we go to and gravitate for um, our certain artists, certain styles of music, whatever. Yeah, I just, you know, I just, um, I think it's a, it's a great time or, you know, it's, it's an opportune time for, for music, obviously, and, and for people to reminisce and think back and, and also to, to embrace. And I agree with you. I think some of the art of it, I think the art of the song is not lost, but the art of the album has been lost for, for quite yeah, a while now. Yeah. And it's... Songwriting it's, is, the songwriting is not as, there's not as many good songs, though, as there used to be. We have, we have, we have way less prolific, great writers going on. You know, I grew, I grew up, my favorite songwriters are, um, uh, Jim Steinman, the guy that wrote Meat Love Stuff. 
um, Jimmy Webb, who wrote all of Glenn Campbell stuff, you know, Henry Mancini. I mean, these amazing, you know, John Barry is one of my favorite composers, by the way. Um, I prefer him even over John Williams, even though he has a very, very um, noticeable, recognizable style in his arrangements and such. Um, he did all the Bond music. Mm-hmm. He did Silver in Time. He did Out of Africa, a bunch of things. Um, they took, I saw, um, uh, uh, what's the song? Oh, uh, Chaplin, the film with Robert Downey Jr. Chaplin, about film, yeah. Chaplin. And the song is, Smile, though your heart is breaking. Smile, even though, you know. Um, he I, started, I just song. instantly started walking <laughs> side to side when you did that. I instantly yeah. just, I, I got goosebumps, I'm going side to side. Oh, fun. Well, that Nat King Cole, of course, made the song popular way back in the day. But Charlie Chaplin wrote that song. And he actually, when he did a score for, when John Barry did the score for Chaplin, the feature film, he, they got a lot of criticism that he was, he was old school. You know, he, his style was too romantic, too smalty for a feature film, a big Hollywood feature film. And he took the song Smile and arranged it for strings the way that he normally arranges his, his romantic style music. And, and it fit the film perfectly. It was beautiful. It was amazing. And uh, anyway, that's just a little, little side, side jaunt there. I did want to mention Ron Grainer and talk about the Omega Man score a little bit. Um, Please. There's some things about that. So the, the, the long running joke between me and my brother was as growing up, he knew that I loved Omega Man music. It wasn't in print. Um, same thing was happening with Blade Runner, I believe, and, and Body Heat as well. He couldn't find those film soundtracks either. Back in Body the Heat. Yeah, Body Heat. Yeah. That's a good Remember that one? Kathleen oh, Turner. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we were always needling each other about, hey, guess what I found in the bargain cutout bin? You know, I found the Mega Man soundtrack. Oh, nope, never mind. You know, <laughs> just yanked my chain sort of thing. Uh, and so for years, that was the running joke. And, you know, Mega Man, you know, nope. And one day when I was working at Human Code and we had this thing called the internet and you could poke around and look for stuff, suddenly I just went, wait a minute, it's 1990 something. At this point, someone may have have this. So I did a search and sure enough, they had released a soundtrack uh, CD. I was so excited. I got my CD in the mail and there it was. And it came with liner notes and they said, um, actually, we we dug in the, in the, in the vaults of warner brothers <coughs> we found almost all the master tapes so confession a couple of the cues are missing some of the parts because the way it was recorded was on multiple tape decks and even further they had a giant organ on the sound stage at warner and ron grainer was basically told we have very little budget so we can't afford a giant orchestra and the big decatry recording where you do the score all in the big scoring stage and you're done. Um, we can give you some money and you can hire like a little string section and a drummer and, uh, and kind of do that thing. And, and so what he did was he used the organ in the soundstage. He hired a small string section, some brass for the, to kind of symbolize the solo uh, man's journey. You know, Charlton Heston's isolated solos. He had like a solo trombone, a lot of cues for him. And basically put it together sort of piece by piece, which is the way that I currently work and many people like myself currently work where we work with, uh, you know, a a piece of software and we lay down a part and then we lay down another part and we lay down another part and we overdub and do that. They actually did that with this organ. Now the organ was this massive thing. It was too big to move. And it was sort of a precursor to a a synthesizer. It had some sort of synthesizer-esque settings on this organ. 
And so the, they found this old guy on the lot who said, yeah, he remembered working with Ron when they did the score and they actually brought in the tape machine and like, as they were, you know, bouncing stuff, they were recording the organ tracks on the fly, you know, sort of like the Eurythmics album, you know, where they ran out of tracks, but we'll just do it as we're mixing down. We'll play the organ parts, you know, as we transfer to this other tape. And that's kind of how it was put together. I mean, the, kind of the quick version of that. And the guys, but I didn't find all the tapes. Well, then they did a release of the CD and they called it 0.5 or uh, like, like Omega Man 1.5. And he found the other tapes. So he, he added a couple of cues that weren't on there and then fixed the cues that, that didn't have the, all the parts. And now they had all the parts because the tapes were, they thought they were gone. Like they just couldn't find them. They had a, like, they were all over the place, apparently in the vaults and whatever. Um, anyway, it's a great, great, interesting read. If you ever get a copy of those CDs, the, the YouTube has the soundtrack. Uh, and it, it just, it meant so much to me. I mean, the, uh, uh, let me get this moved again. Give me one second here. Uh, yeah, this, this, uh, uh, let's see. so and so forth I'm, i can't reach my piano to play it proficiently but hey, you're my brain, you know because I, I i grew up with this music it's what inspired me one of the main inspire inspirations to become a composer so and there's a sound in there that's a chime a clock chime boom and what that is is it's an actual pendulum from a giant clock i believe um that they lower into water and so it's this sort of futuristic design. It's what Neil Peart did on Xanadu, where he hit the wind, the, the tubular bell, and you hear it drop and pitch on Xanadu. Bing, it drops down. You'll hear that at certain key moments in the film, and that effect was used in a few science fiction films from the 70s. But it was way ahead of its time. Is my point? Way ahead of its time in the in the kind of creativity. But it's thematic. It's melodies that you remember. And it builds. And it, that same theme you'll hear in different scenes, reorchestrated with different sounds. You know, and then the, the little look, Rick. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Bum, bum, I mean, bum, but also that, that part that you just did, right? I mean, I, I like just in the movie, it had me sit up straight. Like all of a sudden, I was like, here it comes. What's happening? What's going on? It yeah. There you That, that's another section yeah question because people are going to listen to this and they're going to hear about this man who you know 14 years old wanted to do music for movies his dad wanted to be a dental hygienist 
Yeah, he's, a dental, he's, a dental he's, lab technician. Dental, dental lab technician. Sorry. And then you know, and then all of a sudden you know, you're there's there, there's musical references and there there's actor references and comic references and big movies and small movies and independent and everything in between. What is the network effect for Mark that allows you to not only just be around these people, uh, but be able to work with them? I mean, I, I understand the hard work aspect of it, but I think there's a lot of people who work hard, but they get in the way of themselves or they don't know how to communicate in those circles. I mean, how yeah, do you I mean, yourself? We all struggle. We all struggle with that. I mean, I have, I have, and I have multiple circles, right? I have production circles. I have a composing circle. I have an editing circle. I have an acting circle. I, I have a teaching circle, which is my day, my main day job. Um, the projects are always on the side. I have my magic performance in Renfair world where I perform as Merlin and that's its own thing. And then I'm, you know, again, the entertainment director at another fair that's sort of a smaller fair that we're, we're growing. Um, and all that's kind of on hold, all the performing stuff. And then I also had a cover band. I had an 80s cover band that, you know, was top band on gig masters for many years, Airwave 80s, where we, we played, you know, Bon Jovi and Journey and Sticks and all that, you know. I'm sailing away, you know. Uh, so my circles are, are kind of kind of vast. Um, is that what does it? I mean, is that the point that you didn't try to lock into one very, very specific correct, thing? Correct. My strategy, and it's more beneficial for me, is because I didn't focus on any one thing. And, I, and I, no matter what it is, I just learn it and teach myself and move into that world. And at some point, you get good enough at it that someone notices. Um, and, and really, you just, you just say, well, I, I could do that. You know, and can you? Yes. You can. And then you do it. And then, then they realize that you can. Um, and it, and it, it's very much kind of what uh, you reminded me of a, of a situation like I have an email conversation that I've had three emails back and forth with someone about their short film. And the reality is, I don't even have time to do their short film right now, right? I said, I'd said in the email, um, well, I can do anything. What's your deadline? What's your time frame? And what's your budget? And then they would say, well, uh, could you send some stuff? And can you do this and do that? And I'm like, I can but it's not going to be right for your film because everything I do is very quirky. It's like, it's right for the film I did. I, all I can tell you is all the short films have won awards. I've done feature films. I can do anything. What's your deadline and what's your budget? What's your time frame? What's your budget? Cause I'm thinking, I don't even have time to do this project anyway, unless I hear that the time frame will work with my schedule, you know, at some point, And it's, it's almost, it's, it's a little, frustrating on one hand but on the other hand it's a little it's a little, a little comical because it's like they don't understand that you know i'm 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 not the you know i'm not king of the film composing world by any means but at the same time i could have a whole career and you'll never hear of me and i'm going to be busy 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 all the time so, you know it's just it's it's the way it goes it's just there are different levels of success and uh, i just try to leave the door open and do as many things as i can and it helps me grow because my, my, what I can bring to the table as a composer, guess what? I understand how to edit. I understand how to light the scene. I understand how to act the scene. I understand how to, all the, how to write the treatment and how to put the, you know, the, the, the paperwork together. The one area I'm probably weakest in is distribution and, and, and producing. Like I just, I don't know hardly anything about that world, but I could go learn it if I wanted to, right? I would have to dig, get into that world and start doing it. But at some point, you know, you have to draw the line and say, these are the areas I'm going to work on. But, uh, my point is, is that if you learn one thing, that helps you be better at the other thing, especially in this sort of 
um, collaborative way of, of working. And filmmaking, because of the, like you said, the independent films, you know, need to flourish in the, in the big Hollywood productions. Maybe I'm not going to work on those. Um, the wearing multiple hats is very common, you know, where we, we, you're more beneficial to the production if you can help in other areas, right? You know, Absolutely. Do one thing. What do you know? You brought up you're, you're a teacher uh, with all your experience. I guess, you know, and, and maybe this is just a fault of mine. I, I taught for a little bit, but I wonder how do you, do you stay really focused on, on the core tasks or is it more of like a, hey, this is my life. This is what I've gone through here. Cause I can listen to you talk for hours. My style of teaching is both. What I do is I have a little, I have paperwork that, that says, here's what we need to do. And I will jaunt off into my little story, but then I'll come back to the piece of paper and make sure that we get through what we need to do for the day. But okay, let's go back to this document now. Uh, we need to talk about this. And then I'll teach the technical thing of that. And then maybe I tell a story about it and then I'll come back. You know, I, I, I kind of, I have to redirect myself to stay on task. So it's a little bit of both, but I think that's good. I like hearing stories and about unique uh, perspectives. Um, we're a workforce department, by the way, where I teach is Austin Community College, and we're teaching filmmaking. Um, uh, we, we, I say we're workforce. We're both, we're both a tra what are the, transferring to a four-year institution as well as a, a workforce courses where we're trying to train people to work and be functional on set mm -hmm. and so go to work, right? So that's real world. You, you don't just need theoretical. You need people to work in the industry. And what industry? And that's uh, sometimes even my coworkers and I have these sort of d debates about how we should teach the, the, the students because this coworker uh, has experience at a higher level of production than I do. I've worked in the, you know, the lower budget and guess what? It's professional. It's still professional. The products are still being released. People are still in consuming them and people are making money doing the work but they don't follow all the same standards and practices that the higher level productions should, you know, that, that are adopted in the film industry, right? So yes, we want to educate people about the higher level productions, but at the same time, they need to realize that it may not be done that way everywhere you go. You need to, this is how you need to deal with it and be ready to roll with the punches. File structure, naming of files, just paperwork and documentation. You know, how do we, how do we, what's the nomenclature we use to, to de delegate scenes and setups? You know, what is, here's the standard the industry has adopted for the most part, but really what matters is let's pick a system and be consistent throughout a production so that from pre-production to production to post-production, everything lines up, you know, no one's going to come and, and, and say, you did that wrong. You named those wrong, you know, as long as you name them the same and it's clear, fine. But on the flip side, we need to learn about the, the way the professionals do it and, uh, and, and try to adopt as much of that as we can because we've educated ourselves and, and you know, to, to do it that way. I like what you said about, you know, the, the work aspect of, of the college. You know, I, uh, I did, I did, I've done PR and communications for just 25 years now. And it's always so funny because I would, you know, I get these young kids that come in and they're always like, oh yeah, you know, I got a four year degree in uh, public relations and I'm ready to go. I'm like, okay, so you, you learned how to write an AP style. I appreciate that and good for you. Uh, now we got to learn how to work because it's completely different. And it's just engaging professionally, you know, uh, understanding that, you know, they would pitch a reporter, email a reporter randomly and, and never read their work. Never look at what, what, what they like. They write for the Wall Street Journal. Our client wants to be in the Wall Street Journal. I'm emailing this reporter. 
And I said, you know, you're not just hurting the client's name. That client's going to go at some point in time. You're hurting your name. You know, and, and I would put these doctrines in place. If you have to 20% of your time, you have to read. 10% of your time, I want you to do something that's not client-focused so you can have a normal conversation with people. When you're out with your friends, you know, you're doing whatever, you're talking to mom and dad, you can talk about life in general and see how the two intermingle and how they intertwine. But finally, man, if you can't understand who people are, what's going on, I mean, you know, you're, you're yeah. not ready for work. Getting out of college is just the beginning for those <laughs> that are taking that sort of path, right? I did it the other way around. I just went to work. And then at some point I started teaching and that's the other side, how I got into teaching. I, so when I worked at human code for that 10 year stint, about three years, about uh, eight years into it, a friend of mine who I had hired as a contractor said, Hey, they're looking for someone to teach MIDI, which is musical instrument, digital interface. It's the way these keyboards communicate with the computer and sequencing and stuff. And I had been playing with my Atari computers and doing all my, my production work on, on, uh, with sequencing and stuff. So I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a subject matter expert basically. Um, and so I went and started, I began to teach those courses at Austin Community College in, in production and composing and such and, and MIDI sequencing. And then at some point they said, you know, all of our film people, they don't, no one knows audio. Like they all have their master's degrees, <laughs> but they don't actually know how to do audio. So I started teaching audio production. Yeah, there you go. Surprise. So I started doing audio production in the RTF department and, um, they kind of had this thing called exception status, like, cause, uh, cause at the point, that point, all they have were, were transfer degree. You know, you can only transfer to a four-year school, which required the instructors were technically supposed to have master's degrees, but they just said exception status. Well, that was fine for a number of years, but in 2002, they came along and said, wait, we've got too many instructors with exception status, not with proper credentials. You're all fired unless you can, you know, unless we grant you exception or you can you know, get it together. So I, I was forced to get it together. I took the credits I had before. I took a, two semesters of taking some classes and I got a degree in commercial music management, which they then counted for allowing me to teach in RTF and in radio, television, film because I'm teaching. And then they also said, teach the, excuse me, teach the workforce courses. Those don't require someone with a master's degree because they're more about the, you know, the industry side of things, more about the, uh, you know, the work, workforce side. So I did that for a number of years. And then um, another, I don't know, five years ago or something like that, they came back to me again and said, wait, you're teaching an RTF now primarily, and you don't have an RTF degree. You need an RTF degree. So at that point, um, I was able to get another degree while I was teaching and uh, get that under. So I have three two-year degrees. That's my, my academic background. But like I said, I did it backwards. I worked and then picked up the school when I had to do it because they made me do it. Sure. If I have to do it, I guess, you know, sort of thing. As we're, you know, the, we're getting to, towards the end of the film here and, uh, you know, uh, our, our beautiful lady has turned and Heston's place is destroyed. And one of the things that this brought up to me, and I could be reaching it if I'm reaching, by all means I'm reaching, but I see this thing of, you know, these zombie-esque, people are destroying the things they don't like or they don't want around, right? And they're, they're trying to create a singular culture. And I wonder in the cancel culture world that we live in, how, how do we move and how do we navigate the waters that, um, that allow us to love and respect films of the past that don't have the same uh, sensitivities or insights that we have today without canceling them? 
Yeah, I, I'm I am one of those who doesn't like the censorship of older films because, or, or even just dissing them, if you want to say that, because, yeah. just because they don't fit the current state of affairs from a uh, politically correct standpoint. You know, we watched we watched Breakfast at Tiffany's a few weeks back, and you know that that film gets a lot of criticism because of Mickey Rooney's portrayal of an Asian character because he, you know, he, he puts on blackface, you know, it's not blackface, it's, it's yellowface in this case. He put on some prosthetics and what's the, what's the matter you all the time, run around, you know, they, he does a funny voice, you know, and it's, it's comedy. It's, it's, it's simply a character actor doing comedy. I don't have a problem personally with, you know, in, in 1960, whenever they made the film that, you know, it's, it's not a true Asian playing that part. I wouldn't want an Asian to play that part. That would be, that would be insulting. You know, it's like <laughs> that, that was meant to be a comical character, you know? So no, you know, make a movie about Asian people with real Asian situations and let them be real. Yes. That should be cast with, with Asian actors. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it, I, I'm like, that was then, this is now understand the difference understand right from wrong let's uh let's let's move forward you know let's make some good good stuff yeah i mean that's what i think too it's you know i think it's um it's it's a little bit crazy and arrogant to uh to just throw something away because they didn't have the insights knowledge or understanding that we have today and it's and now it's, we're and, and personal life is not film life you know now we're starting to turn on john wayne a little bit you know because john wayne had some had some things that now would be you know, and, and, and not that they weren't then as well, but, you know, a good Western's a good Western. It doesn't matter what he says in his, in his statements, his political statements, his personal life and all that. Um, I, I kind of separate the two. You know, Bill Cosby is still a great comic, right? It doesn't mean that the things he did, you know, that, that, that's, that's completely different. That's like, that's that. No, that's terrible. Don't, you know, don't do that. But that's still, he's still a great comic. You know, his, his stuff was still good. Um, you know, it's just, it's two separate things. Kind of, I like to keep my things separate when I'm dealing with that. Um, I, I saw, I was getting in a Facebook war with someone, uh, which I hardly ever do, but someone said, well, you shared that. So that means you believe it. You endorse it. I'm like, no, what? No, it doesn't. <laughs> just because I shared it. Maybe I'm sharing it because I want you to go look at this weird stuff. What do you think about that? Or maybe you want to see this to know that this is being said, you know, I don't share it because I believe it. I shared it because I wanted other people to know this was, this is something someone said, you know, we're assuming way too much. We assume way too much. And if you oh, don't yeah, know, yeah. you have no idea where they're coming from. I, I all the time. I ask, I just challenge people with questions and ideas and they assume because they ask the question that I'm on the opposition or that I'm against something. Right. And I'm not, I just want, I want that common marketplace of ideas. I don't want this polarizing, you know, A or B. I want the, you know, I like parts of A, I like parts of B. Uh, I remember I had this intense conversation. I was dating this girl, and we go see her family and their um, assembly of God, and they're very, they're a little right of the you know sheriff of Nottingham, if you will, and they're they're pretty aggressive. And this guy goes, "Are you Republican or Democrat?" I said, "That's not how I vote, sir. I'm sorry. I, I look at the candidate, their policies, and I see which ones are going right. to be most impactful." Yeah. And he goes, "Oh, well, if you vote Democrat, you're you're a baby killer." And I said, "Well, sir, I don't see it that way." But, you know, um, your opinion, if, if it's true and that's the moral ground on which you hold, then, uh, then you vote for, and I just named off some things that Nixon did, let's say. And he goes, oh, well, that was different. And I'm like, see, now 
you're allowed caveats, but I'm not. You're allowed free thinking, but I'm not, because your free thinking is contained into an area, and my free thinking isn't contained to an area. And and it's 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 tragic, you know. And and I bring all that up because you know whether it's Omega Man 1971, whether it's Breakfast at Tiffany's, whether it's um, Geez, why is the, the very funny uh, comedy Western that is so grossly inappropriate escaping my mind? Uh, Saddles? Uh, yes, Blazing Saddles. You know, yeah, no, and that's, that's one of the greatest comedy movies ever done. And ever. at the time, you got to understand it, at the time it was written, it was groundbreaking because, first off, Richard Pryor was one of the writers of that movie. The only reason he wasn't in it was because he was Richard Pryor and the studios didn't want to take a chance on him at that point. He would have done some coke and lit that whole thing on fire. That would have been great. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and the lead actor that was played, uh, uh, um, sorry, I've got to switch gears and remember his name. Uh, Gene Wilder, his character was actually played by a famous old Western actor, but he had a drinking issue and he had health issues. And so after a day or two of shooting, he sort of collapsed on set. So Mel called Gene and said, what are you doing? Get over here. And so next thing you know, we had a Jewish guy playing the, the sheriff, you know, and it was even better. It was funnier, you know, but uh, that was a story he told, actually. That's interesting. Yeah, that was way ahead of its time. And, um, you know, it was supposed to be, it was, it was back to, do you think that people, you know, when they make these movies, are they trying to get their agenda across or trying to, of course, Mel was, you know, he's always playing with those boundaries. He's, he, that was the whole point. And comedy is all about that. You have to build, you have to offend you know, to, to make it funny. Otherwise it's the whole kind of the essence of comedy is there has to be, you know, you, and that's not the goal, but you have to, that's, that's part of it, you know? Yeah. You got to push those boundaries a little bit. Well, listen, Mark, uh, our movie has ended. I cannot thank you enough for your insights. You're, you're, I mean, reaching to play the piano, doing a little singing and everything else. I, I greatly appreciate it. You know, as, as I tell people a lot, I go, the, so you buy a banana, it'll go bad. You buy an avocado, you think it's ripe, it's not, it goes bad. But you can always go buy new stuff. We never get time back. So thank you so much for your time and, and uh, which, what you've done uh, for, for your work and then just sharing all of your stories, man. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. I'd love to have you on again. This has been a lot of fun. Please do. Thank you for, uh, for having me on. Uh, everyone check out Virgin Cheerleaders in Chains. It's uh, available on uh, Amazon Prime, also available from Dark Side Releasing. It is not the kind of film it sounds like. It's a very intelligent film in some ways. Um, strong female characters and lots of good uh, horror stuff, too. And uh, I appreciate, uh, appreciate spending time with you. Thanks a lot, brother. We'll talk soon. Thank you, and have a great day. Perfect. Here's